Hello and a very happy new year from me, Jilly Smith, and Cooking the Books, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. And to kick off a brand new year of life through the prism of food, this week I'm with Tony Vanelli, the Head of Communications and Marketing at Veganuary, to talk about the latest in the series of the official Veganuary cookbook. This year we're seeing Tesco being very plant-centric. You know, their Veganuary launches this year are very vegetable-focused. Leon, you know, their Veganuary launches this year are all about getting as many vegetables into your diet as possible, so they're really billing it as gut-friendly. It's 10 years since Veganuary first made January its own, encouraging people all over the world to try out a meat-free month for the sake of our own health and that of the planet. And it's been a phenomenal success. I asked Tony to take us back to that kitchen table in York where a germ of an idea became a global phenomenon. Uh, It was founded by Matthew and Jane, a husband and wife team, and they were vegan advocates. They'd been campaigning for many years with different organisations in their spare time. They both had, you know, full-time day jobs. Matthew was a double glazing salesman and Jane was an English teacher but they felt that although there were a lot of groups out there who were advocating on the reasons why people should try vegan, there weren't that many organizations actually supporting people who wanted to try a vegan diet. So they decided that that's what they would do. They would start an organization that just focused on helping people make this change. And they thought, well, you know, things like Movember are very popular and dry January. Um, That one month challenge system seems to work quite well for people, you know, so they can just tip, dip their toe in the water and see what they think. Um, So they thought, well, let's try that with veganism, you know, setting it up as a one month challenge rather than something people have to commit to for the rest of their life. And why not do it in January when people are already doing, you know, things to improve their health and be more eco-conscious, etc. You know, this is the time when people are making these changes. So they then came up with the glorious name of Veganuary, which really helped it hit the zeitgeist. And uh, the first year they thought, well, if we get 300 people signed up to this pledge, then we'll be really happy. But they actually had over 3,000, you know, so it was kind of a, a bigger success than they expected right from the start. There are only two countries in the world, North Korea and the Vatican City, that have not been practicing veganuary. I mean, that is quite phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, it really is incredible to think from, you know, 10 years and I'd say it was probably at least two to three years ago where we had already reached, you know, almost every country in the world. So it really didn't take that long for it to become a a global phenomenon. I think by, God, three, four years in, they'd hit a quarter of a million participants. So it really did spiral quite quickly. And now we see press clippings come in from all around the world, you know, where I can't read anything in the article apart from the word Veganuary, because that's the only thing written, you know, in the alphabet that we even use. So it is pretty mind-blowing. Why do you think it made such a big difference. I mean, you know, we try to influence change in so many different areas. What was it about this campaign that really spoke to people, not just in this country, but literally all over the world? I think it was a combination of things. Um, I think the fact that it allowed people just to give it a go, 
You know, it really changed the heavy dogma that surrounded the idea of veganism. So it wasn't a lifetime commitment you had to make overnight. It was something you could just try and see how you got on. And there was, and I think the second thing is that there's no judgment with Veganuary. You know, we really are there to support people, to give them the nutritional info they need, the moral support they need, the recipes they need. And we don't judge people at where they're at or what level of change they're willing to make. We do everything in a very fun, friendly, you know, helpful way. Ten years later, a lot has changed. Uh, we all know so much more about the impact of food production and food waste on the planet. We all know so much more about health. You know, we've now got personalised nutrition apps telling us how to eat and food books are flooding the shelves with information about how to eat and why to eat more healthily. So it is the the state of the nation, but also the planet and obesity crisis and the cost of living crisis as well. So an enormous amount of information has has come in over the last 10 years to really start influencing the way we eat. Where is Veganuary as an organisation on what we now know about soil health, for example? I remember when I first started talking about food and climate change and veganuary, vegans were very, very political and very activist against regenerative farming, for example, or against eating meat. We now know much more about the sort of the balance of eating uh, less factory farmed meat or no factory farmed meat if we can, but also to encourage regenerative farming for soil health. How does veganuary deal with that argument? I guess we start from a place of, you know, we just need people eating less meat. Like that is the main thing. So we don't see ourselves at being at odds with regenerative agriculture because certainly, you know, they would certain also agree that people need to eat less meat. Like you could not physically produce the amount of meat people currently eat through regenerative agriculture, it would not be possible. So even if we all switch to eating regenerative agriculture animal products, people would be eating vastly fewer animal products than they're eating now. So we're really not a million miles away from each other. You know, we both agree that plants need to form the majority of our diet and the basis of our diet and that we should all be moving towards more sustainable consumption, you know, as much as possible. Yeah, and that is it, isn't it? It's this philosophy that encourages more conscious consumption all around. Um, the other thing that I find really annoying, and particularly amongst student vegans, is the amount of plastic consumption and processed food consumption. They're really much more interested in eating vegan than being aware of uh, eating out of plastic pots. How do you deal with that one? I think, yeah, for many people, you know, they like the label that veganism brings. You know, it's easy. This is what I am rather than, you know, this is me making conscious decisions. It's just easy to subscribe to a label, whereas there isn't really a label for people who reduce plastic consumption, you know, and some of these other um, efforts that we should be making. And certainly, you know, the same goes for ultra-processed food. Like we really, with Veganuary and certainly with this cookbook, have made a point of highlighting that whole grains, you know, a whole food plant-based diet is the healthiest and that, you know, fruits and vegetables and nuts and pulses should be the mainstay of what we eat. And in the cookbook, you know, we really have focused on vegetables and 
and whole foods, um, nothing, you know, that people have to go searching for in weird and wonderful places and certainly not using, you know, fake meats. It's, it's tofu and, you know, things like that to give it that texture and lots of legumes. So really trying to educate people that just like an omnivore, you know, wouldn't be healthy if they ate chicken nuggets and chips every night. <laughs> Just because they're a vegan chicken nugget doesn't make them healthier. Exactly. And of course, what's happened in those last 10 years is the business world has become very sort of interested in plant forward diets. And, you know, America has, has really started pushing out stem cell lab meat it's really going to become a, a huge thing on the market very quickly. When America coughs, the world catches a cold, as we know. Denmark is turning from pork to plant uh, as a government initiative, followed by investors, massive industry around this. What's the information that you're giving out to that world to just be aware of processing and packaging? What lessons can the industry learn from your massive success? I think the industry is learning that it's not all as rosy as they thought it was going to be. You know, they really thought that they could just push out more and more and more plant-based meats and cheeses, et cetera, et cetera. And, and these would just be huge successes. And of course, that isn't how capitalism works for a start. You know, people will choose the products that they like the best and those will do well and the others will fall by the wayside. So we're certainly seeing that now, you know, capitalism taking its effect on some of the brands out there. Um, but also, you know, they're, they read the temperature of the nation. So this year we're seeing Tesco being very plant-centric. You know, their Veganuary launches this year are very vegetable-focused. Leon, you know, their Veganuary launches this year are all about getting as many vegetables into your diet as possible. So they're really billing it as gut-friendly version. So I think, thankfully, because this is still a new field, they can be quite nimble and they can adapt and they can be like, oh, okay, yeah. We, we see, like, we need to do more. There will still be people out there who want to eat the vegan chicken nuggets and burgers, and, you know, that's fine, just as, you know, there are people who eat normal chicken nuggets. But I think this way they're, they're realizing that's not the only audience we're catering for. Actually, there is a breadth of people eating plant-based for different reasons, and, and we need to cater to all of them. Yeah. So tomorrow on the Food Foundation podcast, which I also produce, Philip Limbury, who's the um, global CEO of, of Compassion and World Farming, predicts that there will be stem cell meat-free meat at a royal banquet. What do you think? I mean, it's certainly a step in the right direction compared to regular meat as far as the planet goes. You know, there is no form of uh, uh, actual animal meat, you know, produced on a farm, even regeneratively, that would have as low a carbon footprint and water footprint as lab-grown meat will have because... And that's just the nature of it. Animals on farms need to be fed and that feed requires water, et cetera, et cetera, as do the animals. So from an environmental perspective, it certainly is better um, if they're replacing farm-grown meat with lab-grown meat. From a health perspective, obviously there is no difference. The ingredients are the same. It is actually meat. From an animal cruelty perspective, it's a huge improvement. You know, from a few stem cells, you can produce lots and lots and lots of meat without animals having to go to slaughter. So, you know, 
on balance, it's a good thing. Let's start going through your full food moments. You're from an Italian heritage. Your dad's Italian and your first food moment is one part Mediterranean linguine. It it reconnects us with the kind of the cultures that have been absolutely effortlessly doing vegan for hundreds of years. But it also looks to the time poor narrative, Um, this idea that it's going to take time to cook properly, to use cookbooks, etc. This is super easy. Tell us why you chose this one as an example of easy veganuary. Yeah, so we grew up eating Italian food and, you know, certainly pasta was a mainstay of our diet. And I love pasta. I hate washing up. So for me, it's not the cooking. I love cooking. I cook all day long, but I absolutely detest washing up. Um, So in a former life, I was married and my husband did all the washing up. That was the deal. I cooked, he did the washing up. But now I have to do it myself. So anytime I can cut back on the number of pots and pans I'm using during cooking, you know, that is a good thing. And I think for most people, they are time poor. So just being able to chuck it all into one pot and let it simmer away does just make cooking so much easier for people. And your second one, green beans with caraway, is also super easy. I mean, what do you think when people say to you, and they must do all the time, you know, I haven't got time. I haven't got time. I'd love to be much more conscious, but I just haven't got time. I've got, you know, a a two-hour commute each way every day of the week. I've got kids at home, blah, 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 blah. I I just can't do it. How do you deal with that one? Hmm. I mean, personally, I think you find time for things that are important to you. So, you know, rather than scrolling on your phone or watching TV, you know, I don't, I don't watch TV. I food prep at night. You know, that, that's what I do because food is really important to me. Eating nutritious, tasty food that I've made myself is really important to me. So after I have my evening meal, I don't watch TV. I'm getting stuff ready for the next day and looking forward to the meals I'm going to eat the next day. So I think you make time for things that are really important to you. But also things don't have to be as complicated as many people think they are. So something like the green bean recipe, you know, you can throw some tofu in that or some chickpeas in that and you've got a meal. You know, again, one pot, you chuck it all in at once, you use frozen vegetables and it becomes even quicker. And I'm a huge fan of frozen vegetables, especially living on my own. So you can have a huge variety in the house at the same time and not have to worry about using them up before they rot in the fridge. And it'll literally be ready in 10 minutes. Um, and you can have a hearty meal with some rice or some bread. So things don't have to be complicated But if you want to eat nice food, then you have to prioritise it. Because this one is all about the flavour, isn't it? It's simply green beans with caraway. And your third food moment, the buckwheat tabbouleh, a little bit more prep, but it's about flavour as well. And this is about parsley. That is the theme running through the cookbook, isn't it? It's make it super easy, but just throw some flavour in so that you're really enlivening your taste buds and you're making things so much more exciting. But why did you choose a tabbouleh? Because that is something that requires a lot of chopping and preparing and uh, quite a lot of uh, ingredients in there as well. Yeah, I mean, I have just always loved tabbouleh from the first time I had it, and I'm sure it is the parsley. Um, And I just find it, it's such a fresh flavor. You know, it really is just like summer in a bowl between the parsley and the lemon. Um, Obviously, I love tomatoes, again, you know, being a 
from Italian heritage. So that has always been a salad that I'd loved. And then making it for my sister, who's grain-free, and I was like, oh, what can I use instead? Obviously, you can't use normal ingredients for that. Okay, well, buckwheat. Buckwheat is actually not a grain. Um, it's a pseudo-grain being a seed, and she's fine with buckwheat. And I thought, well, I like buckwheat. Will it work in this? And it just, for me, it takes it to another level, and I, I only make it with buckwheat now, um, the roasted buckwheat. So you get that real nutty flavor to it, which I think complements that fresh flavor of the parsley and the lemon really nicely your final food moment the chocolate pots with coconut rum and a spike of chili i am actually going to make this for saturday night it feels like it's a really super easy but very impressive little dinner party pot is that why you chose it yeah i mean at first i was like am i putting too many flavors in here um you know because obviously chili and chocolate work and coconut and lime work and coconut and chocolate work but will all four work together and actually it does it really works together and you know it's just that little hint of rum in there so it's not overpowering but it does make it feel a bit more like an adult dessert than a, a children's pudding um yeah so it really is and again it's easy you know, it seems complicated because there's quite a lot of flavors in there, but it's dead easy to make. You know, you whip it all together and you put it in the refrigerator. It's super simple, but it tastes quite complex and elegant. It's been 10 years since Veganuary started. We've got a long way to go before we can really claim to be anyway near successful with climate change. What do you predict? What do you want from the next 10 years? Ideally... We want to see, you know, the Veganuary concept expand to as many different countries as possible because we know that it works. You know, we've seen the impact it has in the UK. We've seen it replicated now in eight countries where we have offices and in places like Latin America, you know, we're doing incredible there. Like the number of people signing up there is huge. So there is an appetite for this. People around the world know that we need to be cutting back on our animal product consumption. And Veganuary is a really easy way for them to take that first step on that road. So I think for, you know, an organization, our plan is just to keep expanding, working with local groups in as many countries as possible to put the same sort of program in place there. And I know that, you know, working with the major brands and the supermarkets here in the UK, you know, their eyes in this direction as well. They know that our current consumption is unsustainable and, and as the food providers that they need to be having more of a plant focus throughout their shops as well. So I think we're just going to see, you know, this escalate really until it just becomes normal that the amount of meat we consume now or even you know 10 years ago is seen as being quite crazy <laughs> and we'll go back to eating the way our grandparents did where meat was a treat you know that you really savored rather than something you had at every single meal Thanks for listening. Do head to my Substack for extra bites from the Veganuary crew. And if you want more plants in your life, do listen in next week to Nick Sharma on the brilliantly titled Veg Table.